Do you have questions about life and faith and God that remain unanswered? Do you feel like the Christian cliches are shallow and don't really get to the truth? Is this whole Christian thing rather uncertain for you? And, and does that uncertainty exclude you from true spirituality? My name is Skip Collins, and for the next 30 minutes or so, we're going to explore concepts of life and faith and the Bible and Christianity. We'll challenge our traditional views and ideas, which at times will probably make us a little uncomfortable, but hopefully we'll come out on the other side more connected to our faith, to God, and to what we believe. So let's jump in to deeply spiritual, but rather uncertain. Hey, podcast world, thank you for stopping by yet again. I appreciate it. For the past weeks, we have been looking at the themes of the Bible or the, the threads that run through the Bible. Forgive me for continually mixing up those two metaphors. I can't seem to decide which I like best. Anyway, we've talked about grace and justice so far. Today, we jump into what I call redemption. But as I've gotten into this, I realize that I don't really use that word redemption properly. What the word literally means is to pay for something or to buy back something. But when I speak of redemption, I'm talking about a much bigger or broader context. I'm talking about the result of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. I'm talking about redemption and salvation and justification and atonement and sanctification, to use all the theological words. But I'm lumping them into one thing. When I studied theology, we studied each of those words independently because while they're all the same, they're also different. So if you will allow me a little bit of grace when I speak of redemption, I would appreciate it. So let me sum up what I have always believed about in what I call redemption. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit in the Garden of Eden, sin entered the world. Because God is holy and just, he had to punish sin. He couldn't just look the other way or just give them a rap on the knuckles. In fact, it had to be rather severe. They disobeyed God. So he kicked them out of the garden and he cursed them. In fact, the entire world was cursed because of their disobedience, and every human born from that moment on would be conceived in sin and thus cursed and separated from God. But things went from bad to worse. First, Cain kills his brother Abel, and from there, it's really downhill. Finally, it gets so bad that God decides to destroy the whole bunch of them all but one family from which he could start over. So he commissions Noah to build an ark and gather two of every animal and wait out the storm and the flood. Noah and his family start over, but things aren't much better. 
God had promised with a rainbow that he would never do that again. And so he just has to put up with this whole mess. So then he chooses Abraham, and from his descendants, God is going to fix this whole thing. Then once Abraham's family are a decent size, God chooses Moses because they're in slavery and they've got to be taken out of slavery. And then Moses institutes this law and this sacrificial system. The sacrificial system showed us that when there is sin, something has to die so that the sin can be atoned for. But the truth is that system was pretty much hopeless. In fact, a number of places in the Old Testament, God says, I don't need your sacrifices. And one time in Amos, he actually says, I detest your religious practices. So onto the scene comes Jesus, who is, by the way, a descendant of Abraham. Jesus is born of a virgin, and so he is fully God and fully man. He has come with one mission, death. He has come to be the final sacrifice for my sin and yours. He has come to pay the price once and for all. He's come to bridge the gap between God and humanity. It all boiled down to this. God's wrath had to be appeased. God is holy and just, and he can't look at sin. Sin must be punished, and the punishment is death. In one of our very popular modern hymns that we sing these days, there's this line, the wrath of God was satisfied. So God sacrifices his own son in our place. But then God raises Jesus from the dead, and now everybody can live happily ever after. Oh, wait, there's a hitch. You have to accept Jesus' forgiveness in order to receive it. But when you do, your sins are forgiven. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You are adopted into the family of God. And now we all live happily ever after. So that is the gospel story that I grew up with. Well, that story minus the cynicism that you might have picked up. The theological term for all this is penal substitutionary atonement. But in layman's terms, it's just what we call the gospel. And if you're in an evangelical church and they speak of the gospel, that is usually what they're talking about. There are a couple problems with that version of the gospel that have always bothered me. First of all, at what point are sins forgiven? I mean, this has bothered me for years. We were told it's when we say, I'm sorry for my sin and I accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. But I've always struggled with that because there are so many times in the Jesus story that he tells people, your sins are forgiven, and they didn't even ask. 
they don't repent or they don't say I'm sorry or anything. So what's that about? So how does the forgiveness of sin actually happen? My second struggle is this. If Jesus took a bullet for me, who is holding the smoking gun? Is it God? Did God actually kill his own son? C.S. Lewis wrote a wonderful series of children's books that I'm sure many of you are aware of called The Chronicles of Narnia. When I was a young dad, it was like mandatory reading for every Christian sixth grader. In it, there's this lion called Aslan, and he is the Jesus figure. Then there is the white witch who is Satan. And I'm sure many of you have read the story or at least seen the movie that came out many years after C.S. Lewis wrote the book. But when Aslan is killed as a sacrifice in the place of the boy called Edmund, it's the white witch that kills him. C.S. Lewis is saying that Satan is holding the smoking gun. Is that right? Or maybe it's me that if I'm holding the smoking gun. I mean, when we speak of the fact that it was for me that he died, it kind of sounds like that. But if we say that God's wrath had to be satisfied, then it sounds to me like God is holding the smoking gun. No way around that. And the idea that God would sacrifice his son or that he would even have to sacrifice his son so that his wrath could be satisfied is a problem for me. Here's another thing that has always bothered me. Are people inherently good or inherently bad? I struggle with the idea that people are inherently bad, as the gospel tells us. I look around and, of course, I see a lot of bad. Humanity is capable of evil in ways that are beyond understanding. But at the same time, I see so much good I see people that sacrifice themselves for the sake of others. I see people caring for each other in ways that are amazingly beautiful. And I struggle to see humanity as inherently evil. Okay, one last problem I have with this whole thing is that it feels like Christianity is just about making sure my sins are forgiven. It's just about who's in and who's out. Things like justice that we spoke about in the last couple of episodes are good, but they're not really the thing, right? The thing is about whether you have had your sins forgiven. Are you going to heaven or hell when you die? So even in some of our social justice programs, we say, Sure, it's fine to give someone some food, but did you tell them that they were going to hell when they die? Okay, we might not say it that bluntly, but that's what we mean. Because if you don't tell them about Jesus, if you don't share this gospel story, somehow giving them food has little or no value. To just show love is not enough without the proclamation of this gospel. 
And that is a problem for me. And so these struggles, these questions, these doubts I've had around this broad idea of redemption are what has driven me to ask questions about this whole doctrine. Our doctrine around redemption is grounded in the fact that there is something that we need to be saved from. We need to be saved from our sin. Not necessarily our sins, although there's that too, but even if we had never sinned, we are still born in sin because of the original sin of Adam and Eve. Sin is literally passed down through semen. We are born guilty. That is the doctrine of original sin that I have preached many times and that our theology of redemption revolves around. I was surprised that the doctrine of original sin, as we evangelicals understand it, was first introduced by the theologian Augustine about 400 years after Jesus. For the first 400 years of the church, original sin wasn't a thing. But Augustine's idea stuck, and it is still widely accepted by the Christian church today. It was at the time of the Reformation, then, that Calvin took the idea of original sin, and he added this idea of total depravity. He said we're not only guilty— But every part of our being is corrupt. There is absolutely nothing good in us. What if Augustine was wrong? What if the whole premise of original sin that is the foundation for our gospel is not right? The Eastern Orthodox Church never really bought into Augustine's idea of original sin. They call this this choice that Adam and Eve made um, the first sin, not the original sin, which seems like a small difference, but in the end, it's pretty radical. If I understand it correctly, they would say that while we all bear the consequence of Adam's sin, we don't all bear the guilt. The Western Church says we bear the consequence and the guilt. Now, that might seem like a very small difference, but when you get to salvation and atonement, it means that Jesus didn't die to save us from our guilt, from our sin. He died to save us from the consequence of sin, and that is very different. Original sin is based on the idea that Adam and Eve disobeyed God, so they were punished by God. In fact, we would even say it's stronger than that at times. We would say that they were cursed by God. The whole earth was cursed by God. But what if that's not right? Was that tree of good and evil that they were supposed to not eat from just a random tree that God picked out to test Adam and Eve to see if they would really obey him? I mean, that would be weird. 
Is that something that you would do to your kids? I mean, say you can play with any toy in this room, but don't play with that one truck. And then I watch and I watch so that if they play with that truck, I can punish them. It's a test to see if they will obey their father. I wouldn't do that. I don't think you would either. What if the reason that God told them not to eat from that tree was because it was poisonous? There was something about it that was harmful or destructive. In the same way, I might instruct my children, don't play with daddy's table saw. Not so that I can catch them and punish them when they play with it, but because I don't want them to get hurt. What if God knew that the consequences of them eating that particular fruit were harmful and destructive, and he was actually trying to protect them? What if God wasn't punishing them at all, but rather they were just suffering the consequences of their choices? And what if in Genesis chapter 3, rather than God cursing all of humanity because of Adam and Eve's sin, he is rather pronouncing or even explaining the consequence of their actions? And what if God doesn't need anything from us in order to forgive? What if God just forgives? That's certainly not the gospel story. The gospel story is that God had to devise a plan in order to forgive sin because he couldn't actually just forgive sin. But what if that's not right? You know that part of the story after Adam and Eve have eaten from the tree and God is walking about the garden and Adam and Eve are hiding? What if God had already forgiven them? I find it interesting that after God pronounces this curse and punishment, as we call it, you see him making them garments so they can survive outside the garden. That doesn't look like separation to me. Could it be that all of that was just the consequence of their sin and not some punishment and curse from God? If that's true, it would change the end game pretty considerably. So if Jesus didn't die to forgive our sin, as I had always thought, then why did he die? There are a number of different theological views out there that are fascinating and that really solve some of the questions that I've had around this whole subject of redemption. The Christus Victor view of atonement was first championed by Gustave Alin in 1931. Since then, there have been a lot of tweaks and versions of this theory. But basically, the idea is that Jesus didn't die to forgive our sins, our original sin. Jesus died to free us from the bondage of sin. 
And while that might seem like semantics to some, the differences are pretty significant. In some ways, this goes to the smoking gun question, and this is really the theory that C.S. Lewis is adopting in the Chronicles of Narnia. Jesus gave himself over to the powers of evil to be crucified, and in doing so, defeated Satan and his minions. Christ is victor. Christus victor. But it's not just about humanity that Christ overcomes evil. It's all of creation. Christ's death defeats all the consequences of sin. And as we put our faith and trust in him, we are freed from the consequences of sin and the power of sin. I distinctly remember the first time I heard this theory. I heard a sermon that a pastor from Minnesota preached at Mars Hill in Grand Rapids when Rob Bell was still the pastor there. This is probably like in the mid-90s. That pastor's name is Greg Boyd, and I've been a huge fan of his ever since. But when I heard him preach this, I felt like this huge weight had been lifted off of me. I listened to it like three times, and I just wanted to shout. It's the first time I had heard anything that seemed like a logical alternative to penal substitutionary atonement. Later on, I came across the Eastern Orthodox view of atonement. Now, in my limited understanding, there are a number of similarities to the Christus Victor view. This view of atonement is what the early church fathers believed. It predates Augustine by a few hundred years. They would say that Jesus died to free us from the consequences of sin, which is death. The consequence of the first sin is that death has entered the world. And Jesus came to free us from sin and death. But here is where I find this so fascinating. The Orthodox make a pretty big deal about Jesus descending into hell between his crucifixion and resurrection. It's in the Apostles' Creed, if you come from a tradition where that was a thing, they speak of the fact that Jesus descended into hell to free those that were under the curse of sin and death. They rely heavily on a verse in 1 Peter where he mentions that Jesus preached to the dead in hell, and he offers them freedom from death. If you read the Gospel of Nicodemus, which is part of the Apocrypha, there is this whole long story of Jesus entering hell and preaching to the people there and offering them life. Even Adam is there, and in this great triumph over death, Adam is brought out of the depths of hell and brought into paradise. Now, the Gospel of Nicodemus isn't part of the Bible, but it does give you an indication of what the early church actually believed, that Jesus died to set us free from the law of sin 
and death. There's yet another popular view these days, especially among more quote-unquote progressive Christians. Richard Rohr, who was a Franciscan priest, is also a prominent person in presenting this view. He's just written a new book called The Universal Christ, which I haven't read yet, but his daily email meditations have been excerpts from the book for a while now. Father Rohr and the people that are proponents of this theory claim that the cross was a freely chosen revelation of love on God's part. Pretty much all the world religions up to this point believed that blood had to be shed in order to gain the approval of God. But Jesus' death on the cross turned that idea on its head. To quote Father Rohr, Instead of being a theological transaction, the crucifixion was a dramatic demonstration of God's outpouring love, meant to utterly shock the heart and mind and turn it back towards trust and the love of the Creator. The idea of all this is that the crucifixion becomes transformational rather than just transactional. It is the picture of what true love is, self-sacrificing, radically forgiving, and co-suffering. It is the picture of the God who loves us, a God who is self-sacrificing and radically forgiving and co-suffering. And the understanding of that transforms us and calls us to live that same kind of love. So I think it's about time we wrap all this up. And there's a tons more that could be said on all of this stuff. But let me briefly tell you where I land on all of this because I've kind of been all over the place today. I have pretty much abandon the doctrine of original guilt and total depravity. That's not to say that we have not sinned or that we don't need redemption and wholeness. It's just to say that we are born in the image of God, and that is beautiful and wonderful and perfect. But we are born into a world that is broken and confused and cursed because of the consequences of sin. I've pretty much abandoned the evangelical view of penal substitutionary atonement, not just because I don't like it or because I have questions about it, but what, because while there are certain verses that might point to this theory being right, they really have to be taken in isolation in order to do that, and, and, and not in the context of the whole of Scripture. So that's my, that's my deconstruction part of this. The reconstruction bit is still in progress for me. I have looked and continue to look at all three of these models that I laid out in this podcast. And as, as I read the Bible, I read it through these lenses and I see where it takes me. My view at this point is probably a bit of a combination of all three of those. But this is what I'm quite confident of. The God that I have chosen to serve and to love and to give my life to is a God who loves me deeply. He is self-sacrificing, 
radically forgiving, and a co-suffering God. He takes that which is messed up and broken, and he makes it new through his love. He transforms it, heals it, frees it, redeems it. And this God requires nothing in return. That is the message of redemption. That is the message of the cross. That is the message of the Bible. If you would like to do more reading or study on any of these subjects, because I've just kind of scratched the surface, drop me a note through social media and I can try to point you in a good direction. If you have questions, please be sure to write. I would love to interact with you. For now, I will be back in two weeks' time as we look in the last of these themes of the Bible. So I will see you then. Shalom. Shalom.